Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. Today we will be looking at verses, the entire chapter of 2 Samuel chapter 11. As we see something uh, terrible happen to someone we have admired greatly up to this point. What a disappointment in many ways this text is, and yet... At the same time, what a warning this text provides for us even today that one gloriously blessed like David could take such a fall, such a devastating fall. Uh, When I remember when my grandson Gabe, who's now 18, was a, a little around two, he took the magic marker into his bedroom and had a party. He wrote all over the walls, and I mean every possible space, and maybe some he made. So he walks in and looks at his mother, and he goes, Mom. And she looks at him, and he says, It's bad. (laughs) And she said, What is bad? He said, It's real bad. And you know what ensued? They went back to the bedroom, and there it was for all to see. Well, this chapter is bad. It's really bad. And uh, it's not been fun meditating on it. I, I really wrestle and feast upon the passage and think about it all week long, and it hasn't put me in the best humor. But the only thing that comforts me about this passage is the great grace that follows uh, David's life, even though consequences ensue that are terrible. So let me call your attention to the reading of God's word as we begin in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent the messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, washing your feet here does not mean washing your feet. It's a euphemism for sexual intercourse. You'll see that in a moment. But that's what he did. But, uh, yeah, and... Go down to your house, wash your feet, and Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. 
But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of, the, of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house, eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling him all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you not go, or why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to tell him. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate and then the archers shot at your servants from the wall some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also David said to the messenger thus shall you say to Joab do not let this matter displease you for the sword devours now one and now another strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we pray today that we would benefit from this time together looking carefully at your word. And we pray that our ears would be open to hear and our hearts would be pliable and tender to receive this word, this engrafted word, which is able to save us, which is able to give us life, which is able to provide for us rebuke, correction, insight, wisdom. How we pray that we would see uh, your glory today 
And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is really bad. And it's really sad. Because when you look at the life of David up to this point, he has been heroic. And it hasn't been just airbrushing and backlighting and, uh, you know, kind reporting. He's really been a stand-up guy. He's really been above and beyond the average person. I mean, he's done some remarkable things in the last two chapters. He showed covenant kindness both to Mephibosheth and then to the uh, nation that he's now warring with, Ammon. But here, David does something that seems completely out of step with the character we have seen so far. And what the Bible does, the Bible is not flattering at all to human nature, and I think we know that. It has a very bleak view of fallen human nature. Our hearts deceive us. They lie to us and make us believe the lie. We fail to see ourselves as we really are, profoundly unrighteous, desperately weak, and extremely foolish people. We prefer a more positive, optimistic view of human nature, but when God does not have his rightful place in our understanding of the life in the world, we have a terribly distorted vision of reality. Furthermore, we are deceived into thinking that we are not deceived, that we really, what we really see and know is true. We cannot see the seriousness of our defiance of God. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness while imagining that we are people of integrity. We become captives, as it were, to our own sinfulness while being deluded into thinking that we are in control of our lives. This whole chapter is about David assuming control of his life and assuming that he could fix what was broken. There is an absence of David even turning to the Lord. He's operating now under self-reliant shock mode. What hope is there for us and what hope is there for the world if the Bible's diagnosis of human nature is true? Second Samuel is the account of a time when it became clear that even the great King David had a heart that was deceitful above all things and desperately sick. We have heard how in the apparent safety and security of his royal city, David allowed his own selfish desires to totally swallow him up. He took Bathsheba knowing that she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. He committed adultery with her. Those are big, huge things, bigger than he knew, and would have consequences far uh, beyond what he could imagine. Then just when we thought he had gotten away with it, a messenger from Bathsheba comes to say she's pregnant. What would be, be done? Of course, the right action at that moment, one would think, would be for David to humble himself and acknowledge what he had done. And it's serious. He could have been killed for that. The prescription of the law was to kill people who committed adultery. He would have been subject to that even though he was king. And it was a lot to ask. He should have received Israel's death penalty. We do not know whether the full force of the law would have been impressed upon him. That's beside the point. We had numerous occasions when David risked his life to do what is right. 
That was when he trusted God. But here we see David taking his eyes off of his relationship with God and going his own way. I like very much the way uh, Walter Brueggemann describes this chapter. It is quite powerful. He says this, the action is quick. The verbs rush as the passion of David rushed. He sent, he took, he laid. The royal deed of self-indulgence does not take very long. There's no adornment to the action. The woman then gets some verbs. She returns, she conceived. The action is so stark. There's no lover discussion. There's no exchange of affection or adoration between one another. It's all so very stark and candid and raw. David used women. He used women. He saw women as objects to be manipulated for his own pleasure. He used women. He had multiple wives. He had concubines. And now he takes somebody else's wife. And it's a horrible, horrible thing. There's nothing but action. There's no conversation. There's no hint of caring or affection or love, only lust. David never calls her by name, does not even speak to her. At the end of the encounter, she is only the woman. The verb that finally counts is conceived, but the telling verb is he took her. Long ago, if you will remember, Samuel warned the nation that when they took kings or they took a king over them, that king would take from them. And David becomes a taker here. He took her as his own. Mostly David had not had to take. He had everything graciously and gladly given to him by Yahweh, by Jonathan, by Abigail, and by his adoring followers. What we have before us in chapter 11 transformed David, however. Now he's in control. Now David can have whatever he wants. He's sitting in the catbird seat, as my father used to say. There's no restraint, no second thoughts, no reservations, no justification. He doesn't answer to anybody. He does exactly what he wants when he wants for as long as he wants. He is the culmination of enormous power. In verse 5, the woman speaks for the very first time. She says only two words, but they are utterly shattering and devastating. I am pregnant. David is not the last person to have his world shattered by this message. Nonetheless, the world-shattering words of Bathsheba completely nullify the royal power of David. David had been in control. Now in an instant, as long as this message takes, his control ends. Notice the woman makes no demand or threat. Her words say enough and say it all. Here we see Eden revisited in this moment in David's life. David occupies the place of the woman who, when she saw the fruit, you know, God had a probation placed upon the pair in the garden, Adam and Eve. They could partake of all the fruit in the garden, but there was one tree they were not allowed to partake of. And uh, through the subtlety and seduction of Satan, Eve saw the fruit, and what did she say? It was good, and one to be desired, and one taken will make you wise. David saw the naked woman bathing on the roof, and it was good. And it was beautiful, and he took it. 
It's Eden revisited. Exactly the same thing. Lust, sin, and death. James talks about it. When lust has conceived, sin occurs, and when sin occurs, death occurs. And David died of death at this moment. Up to this point, he's been, in a measure, restrained. But here, we see him stripped before our eyes of all of his glory. We've seen him do what so many before him have done. There was a hymn writer, and I get this from uh, Ralph Davis, for those of you who take those uh, kind of uh, references. Uh, there's a snip from Robert Robinson's hymn, O Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, that scares me. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Robert Robinson understood it too. He had been converted under George Whitfield's preaching in 1752 and later became a Baptist pastor in Cambridge. Toward the end of his life, he had again given way to frivolous habits, as one account has it. One day during this period, he was traveling by stagecoach. Another passenger, a lady and a total stranger, was going over some hymns and especially and persistently referred to Come Thou Fount as one that had brought her immense blessing. As she continued speaking, Robinson became so agitated that he blurted out, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who composed that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Verses 1 through 5 provide for us insight into that sentiment. Later on, Robinson would say, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to see. What if you're saying to yourself right now, sitting in your seat, Oh, no, I would never do that. You're halfway there. You are halfway there. You don't know yourself. You don't know how deep it goes. You've never been put in a position to fall, perhaps. Maybe you have, maybe you've fallen. And you know there's grace for people who fall and fail. But consequences notwithstanding, David has done something horrible here. He took another man's wife, a man who was faithful to him, a soldier for him, a Gentile convert, as it were. And the woman herself, Bathsheba, did David know who she was? Well, sure he knew she was. She was uh, related to some of his uh, big-time officers in the brigade. I'm trying to think of who. Let me find that really quickly. Bathsheba was the daughter of Eliam, one of David's 30, and the uh, son of Ahithophel, one of David's chief advisors. Ahithophel was from Gelo, a city of Judah, and thus Bathsheba was from David's own tribe and the granddaughter of one of David's closest advisors. In short, she would doubtless be known to David already and was probably a generation younger than the king. What a horrible thing happens here. Dirt, David, David is a dirty old man, leering, voyeur, staring at a woman. It's filthy. It's awful. And David does it. 
thinking that he can control it, thinking that he can make his way through. And the most interesting thing in this passage we will see as we look a little more closely as the events play their way out. And so David decides to do the cover-up. As they always say, the cover-up is worse than the act. Well, I don't know, but he had three. He had plan A, plan B, and he had to go to plan C. Plan A, of course, was, and there's a little note included about Bathsheba's purification. Why do you think that's in there? Because it had to do with her menstrual cycle, which would make her unclean to worship uh, the Lord. She could not enter worship with that, and so she had cleaned herself, indicating what? The cycle was over, and she could be what? Impregnated. The writer knows what he's putting in here. It really happened, and David really did it. Now, David acts with characteristic quickness, decisiveness, and what he thinks is cleverness. There's no vacillation. There's no debate. There's no seeking any help. He's simply saying in his heart, he acts, he sends for Joab. Who else? David sends word to the front proposing to reach a public solution to a personal dilemma. Uriah is summoned. He comes, is a man responsive to authority, in verse 7, David engages in formal inquiry, the kind of conversation a commander-in-chief would have as sort of deep briefing from a field uh, soldier, and he talks to him. He talks about shalom, and he talks so much about shalom. It may also serve to mislead Uriah. Now, the question has come up, and I still don't know the answer to it, whether Uriah knew what had happened. Because the text doesn't say he didn't know, but it didn't say he does know, right? But if you look at the situation and how he responded, you almost get the conclusion that he's not going to play David's game. He's not going to do it. He already knows. Hey, look, this is, this is an area in which David has already told multiple people. He's told Joab. There have been messengers who took the message to Joab. Joab speaks to other messengers and sends Uriah back. The terrible thing is David tries to talk him into having a day off, sort of a mini vacation in the midst of the war, assuming that he would go home, lie with his wife, and David would ease himself out of the situation because then her pregnancy could have been blamed on Uriah the Hittite. David loves nobody. He's manipulating and using everybody to save his own skin. Well, Uriah doesn't fall for it. Whether he knew it or not, I don't know. David sort of changes the subject and moves to the strategy of the cover-up. One might uh, think with Bathsheba pregnant, the last person David needs in Jerusalem is Uriah. But David is a smart and bold man, so he thinks. He sends Uriah to his house with a euphemistic suggestion that Uriah have sexual intercourse, wash your feet, what must have appeared to Uriah to be familiar talk between uh, joshing military men is in fact a crucial part of David's strategy. If Uriah can now be seen to be involved with Bathsheba, David can be free of suspicion. He can fix this. He can undo what he has done. There's a hardness in David here. That's, that's what I always say. You don't do sin. Sin does you. 
Be sure your sin will find you out, the author of Numbers tells us. And this sin will find him out. But you see him becoming insane. He's not thinking clearly. He thinks he's going to outsmart everybody. He thinks he's going to outsmart all the parties involved. And he's going to get out of this scot-free and clean. But David is overestimated. Sin has a way of making us do insane things, stupid things. Things that are worse. And David is in that web of lies and thoughts. So, the solution is minimal here. It's simple. The only problem is Uriah, who is the quintessence of fidelity. He's too disciplined for David. Uriah just shows up even more the awful heinousness of David's act. David has an intelligence system. He knows immediately uh, what is reported when Uriah did not go down. David asked Uriah when, why he did not go down, and Uriah might have wondered how David knew or why David even cared, but Uriah plays it straight all the way. Whatever Uriah thinks, he keeps it to himself. And in verses 8 through 10, we have the verb go down four times. The words pound us with rhetorical stress. Go down, Uriah. Go down. Go down to your house. It's the only thing David wants from him. It's one thing that Uriah will not do. Everything Uriah cares about is at risk. In the context, in that context, Uriah will not eat, drink, or lie at ease. And so Uriah's words indict David when he talks about all of the other things that he mentions in the text about the Ark of the Covenant and about everything else. Uriah's words indict David. Uriah, a foreigner, is not even a child of the Torah, but he's faithful. It's a stunning moment of disclosure and contrast. Again, I wonder, I have no solution, but I wonder if Uriah knew what was going on, and I kind of think he did. I kind of think he did know. But David, again, will not bargain or cajole or beg. He's the king. By verse 12, it's clear that David has quickly abandoned the strategy of going down. David now knows that the intent to implicate Uriah was a miscalculation of Uriah's principal character. Thus, on Uriah's last night, David spends it eating and drinking with Uriah. How crass and cynical. David does not get drunk. He stays in control. But Uriah gets drunk. Indeed, this text specifies that David made him drunk. And we're witnessing here a ruthless political power performance. We are in the presence of what we thought was greatness for David and for Israel. We are at the moment of no return. Innocence can never be retrieved. We are, as it were, left with what's there. David's cynical use of the loyal Hittite is quite explicit in the example or in the simple scene of drinking. David is thinking and planning. David in this odd intimacy with this Hittite playing a role. But he betrays this man. All of it is hidden. But Uriah never goes down. 
David could no more control the principal Uriah than he could manage the pregnancy of Uriah's wife. He's panicking. And so he comes to plan C where he does this. He sends a letter. Uriah has his own death warrant in his hand to go and give to Joab. Look at the irony of that. He sends Uriah with a letter for Joab. Now, Joab does whatever the king says. Joab's not worried about right or wrong in this case. But he gets sent, and he comes, and he presents it to Joab, and Joab knows exactly how to take care of the problem because he's a veteran of the battlefield, and he knows if he puts him up where the valiant men are or up toward the city walls, Uriah's a dead man, and it's just a matter of time. And so he eventually does this, and Uriah is killed. David, through the manipulation of his own idea, through the handiwork of Joab, plots and plans the murder of Uriah the Hittite. And easy to cover up, so he thinks, because it's on the field of battle and people get filled. Even his response when the messengers come back and tell him, though they go through around the world ten times before they finally tell him, Uriah the Hittite is dead, David cynically says, well, that's war for you. You know, people get killed in war. That's what happens. See how cold and crass and cynical David has become. And all of that has happened. But as the story continues to develop, we see that the report is more delicate than the act itself. Messengers have dangerous work. They can be killed if they refuse to relay the messenger. And so when he hears that Uthiah, uh, Uriah the Hittite is dead, David exhales slowly with relief. It's done. It's over. The cover-up has finally worked. No one will ever know. No one saw it. No one will ever know what this horrible thing I've done, even though he wouldn't name it out loud to himself. Nobody's going to know. Everything's fine. Got through that. That's what David thinks. And so the one thing needed to happen has happened. The pregnancy then becomes reassigned. David is free of the burden. The truth has been concealed. The guilt is passed. The monarchy is saved. David's life is saved. Everything can go on as it was before, or can it? David's response in verse 25, his word back to Joab, is wondrously cynical. David has grown visibly more cynical in this narrative as it advances. David instructs messengers to say to Joab, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. trouble you is too weak the word evil is the word that's used here and it's important David presumes now to be a moral arbiter and he assures Joab that he and Joab have not perpetrated evil do not feel guilty about this it is in the fog of war people die all the time in the war and you must not be exercised by it so David says in his fear and anxiety, David has set himself against the whole moral tradition of Torah and of his people. David knows better. This was an act of war. This was an act of malice, of cunning, of heartlessness. Uriah's death is not excusable, and it's not an accident of war. 
But it is a dark necessity of royal power. And this message back, David is either morally numb so that he cannot discern between good and evil, or he's incredibly cynical because he no longer cares to notice what he can discern. The narrator leaves the two options open. But God sees it. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. You know, the Lord witnesses everything. He sees everything. He knows everything. He knows us inside out. He knows us better than we will ever know ourselves. And he knows what has happened. Now, can't David be forgiven for this? Didn't Jesus go to the cross to die for David? And to bear David's sin and shame upon himself, the sin of adultery, the sin of murder upon himself, certainly he'll be forgiven. Certainly if he just confesses his sin, everything will be okay. Oh, no, it won't. You don't do sin, sin does you. And sin has consequences. And the consequences that ensue, we're going to see in the rest of 2 Samuel. Everything in his life goes awry because of this everything you know you reap what you sow if you sow to the flesh you reap rottenness and you reap corruption if you sow to the spirit you reap eternal life David has sown to the flesh he might be praying that the crop won't come in but the crop will come in God forgives our sin consequences notwithstanding the consequences still occur. Think of how many people were hurt and damaged by what David had done one afternoon. Think about that. Think about it. All the people that were touched by this act of King David, not only just the personal in, uh, actors in the situation, but all Israel is affected by what David has done. The consequences, the ripple from the stone being thrown in the pond circulates all throughout the body of water. And it's like everything now is in the backwash of what David has done. This is serious business. He took another man's wife. His wife belonged to him. That was his special relationship of, of covenant that was engaged in and he took her David didn't ask her David didn't uh, even attempt he's the king the king gets what he wants and the king says what he wants and if you don't do it you die there's no indication that Bathsheba wanted this relationship at all there's no indication she was in love with King David there's nothing there there's no conversation it's just a pure unbridled act of lust and selfishness and cynicism and so it grieves our hearts to see somebody who we all have loved and all of a sudden the narrative becomes tense first we see Bathsheba mourns the loss of Uriah then David marries Bathsheba Second, Bathsheba bore to David the son conceived in verses 2 through 5. Remarkably, Bathsheba is not called by her own name even in this royal wedding announcement. She is called by her right name, only identified by reference to Uriah, to whom she is married. She is Uriah the Hittite. And when you look at the genealogy, 
where the four women are mentioned in Matthew's gospel. Who is she called, Bathsheba? No. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Points being made. The reason why we look at this text with any hope at all is because David is not the one. He's not the anointed one. He is one who points us forward to look for the anointed one, but he's not the one. His sin has disqualified him. As great as he was, as much as he united Israel, as much as he strengthened Israel, his son builds the temple, the glory days of Israel are ahead. David does not build the temple, and David's family completely falls apart. He took Uriah's family. Now God will bring to bear on his own family the sin of David. The hope is that there is one who has come, who did not succumb to temptation, who met the enemy in the wilderness uh, for 40 days, tempted, as it were, and passed the test. The one who never sinned, there was no guile in his mouth. The one who had a sterling character and reputation that could find no sin in him. He came, and he did for us what David could never do. Never put your hope in princes or the best of the sons of men. We just had an election. Did you know we had an election? Has your phone finally stopped ringing? If you called me during the last two weeks and I didn't answer you, it's because I just stopped. It was ringing every minute. And the texting was going off every minute. Now, you see, a lot of people put their ultimate hope in the election. If we can just get the right people elected, it will turn the world around. No, it won't. Problems are too big for that. The only thing that's going to turn this world around is when that same Jesus who went to the cross and bore your sin and David's sin in his body on the tree, took it down into death, tasted of the full measure of God's wrath for it, raised again, ascended to the right hand of the Father, is coming again to judge the quick and the dead in his second coming. Then and then alone will everything be made right. Now, that doesn't mean you don't participate and do all you can for righteousness and justice and all of that. I'm for that. But don't put your hope, never put your hope in me or any other man. Why? Because we're weak. We are sinful. We are foolish. And the sooner you know that about yourself, the better off you'll be and the better uh, understanding you will have. Do we have any compassion of, for David? Of course we have compassion for David because we all know about the weakness of the flesh and we all know that he saw a beautiful woman and in that moment decided what he decided. It's the same act of any sin, more pronounced, consequences heavier and bigger. But the good news is Jesus has lived the life God demands of all of us. When God looks at us, he sees plenty to be displeased about, honestly. But Christ has taken the judgment for us and given us his righteousness to cover our shame and our nakedness so that when God looks at us, 
just as he said to his son after his baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And if you're united with Christ, he says to you, you are my beloved adopted son in whom I'm well pleased. I'm well pleased. What a powerful thing. You and I will think about that this week. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the text like this in the Bible, which is so stark and so visual and so real and so rotten. It's heinous. It disturbs us, creates within us fear and anxiety and tension as we see the corruption of the human heart. But at the same time, Lord, Though consequences ensue, and through those consequences, we are purified if we respond in repentance and faith. David will write one of the most beautiful psalms, Psalm 51, in response later on to this event. And yet, we pray that we would distrust ourselves as the final arbiter of anything that we are not clever and smarter than you and other people, that we are weak, we are foolish, and we are sinful, and we need a Savior, and we need accountability with the people of God. Now, fathers, we continue to worship. May we give as those who are exhilarated and enthused and elated by your grace and your mercy, that there's no sin too great for your mercy, that there's no problem too complicated that can't be addressed by your gracious action. And now, Father, uh, we pray your name would be honored and praised. In Christ's name, amen.